Well, welcome once again. If you are just visiting with us here at Redeemer, my name's Ben. I'm the assistant pastor here, and we are so thrilled to have you with us. We are just a small little church family dreaming big dreams of what it looks like when the love of Jesus impacts our neighborhood. And if you've been uh, visiting with us, you know that we've been... uh, dreaming of what that looks like. We've been having our dreams shaped of what our neighborhood could look like by this very old letter, a letter that was written in the first century to a group of Christians who felt very lonely, who felt like they were ostracized and cut off from the rest of the world. It felt like they were the only ones in the world who believed that this story of Jesus of Nazareth, that he died and rose again, that he offered freedom and hope to any who asked for it, that they were the only ones in the world who believed that crazy story. And indeed, if you've been following along with any of uh, Matt, our senior pastor's sermons, you should have heard one clear message. If you, even today, if you follow along with this story of Jesus, if you dare to believe that the story of Jesus is good news from the world today, then you are strange, strange, right? Uh, our, our, the series title has been Strangers in a Strange Land, that you have a different kind of identity, and one that's not based on your performance, but on, on who God is, a, a strange hope, a strange story of the world, strange conduct, a strange community, right? You're, you are a person who is by default, because you are listening to the story of Jesus, you're being shaped to march to the beat of a very different kind of drum than the one that is all around us. And if you have ever been to the junior high, you know that that's a pretty terrifying place to be in. Right? Maybe you don't even have to be in junior high. One of my favorite quotes in uh, the movie Home Alone is this little boy and, and someone's telling him how nice and beautiful this sweater is that his grandparents knitted for him. And his response was, not for a guy in the second grade. You can get beat up for wearing something like that. I had a friend once who got nailed because there was a rumor he wore dinosaur pajamas. And it's true, isn't it? We are from a very early age taught to fear being strange, to fear being different, to fear uh, being noticeable in the crowd in any sort of bad way. We want to fit in. We want to go along with the flow. And yet Peter in this ancient text, as we've continued to go through it, is repeatedly telling this group of Christians that who live in the midst of a very polytheistic world, in the midst of a world where there's every kind of belief system imaginable, that they are really, really, really strange. In fact, he calls them sojourners, exiles, outcasts, strangers, foreigners in a strange land. And so as we come to this passage today, we have to deal with this question. How do we deal with the fact that we, that the world, the the people around us, our boss, our family members, right? The, the, The politicians who claim to represent us, that they do not understand our strangeness. That they do not understand where we are coming from. And as we notice that strangeness, 
I've got a couple things to tell you. I've got some bad news for you. I've got some good news for you. And then in the spirit of Lent and self-reflection, I've got what I think is a pretty hard question to ask of ourselves. So which one do you want first? You want the bad news first, good news? All right, I think I heard someone say they wanted the, the bad news first. The bad news in these quick little verses that Peter writes to these people is that because you are thought of as being strange, because the world does not understand why or how you are doing what you are doing, that you will be thought of as being evil. You see it right there in verse 12, right? He says, when, not if, not, not maybe, right? But when they speak against you as evildoers. And this really shouldn't surprise us too much, should it? Excuse me while I uh, move my microphone pack here. It shouldn't surprise us. It's not too surprising, right? It's, it's, you could ask any person of any minority group who's ever existed in the world, right, that, that the path from strangeness to evil, the path from someone thinking that you are a little bit off to someone thinking that you have bad intent is pretty short, right? You could ask anyone from any people group or any people of color at all, right? And the rumors that have circulated about them, the, 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 the bigoted stereotypes that have been passed all lead to the fact that when you're strange, it's pretty easy for others to think of you as evil. All right, you could think of, of Jews in the history of the world, Mormons, Muslims. You could think of our neighbors who are in the LGBT communities, right? You could think of immigrants or refugees, all of these people who look a little bit different, act a little bit different. And when they do, then there seems to be no uh, limits to the outlandish rumors, to the outlandish accusations of evil that can be made against them. And that's also true of Christians. In fact, uh, the people who Peter would have wrote this first letter to, the people who, who would have been the first readers for the first couple centuries after it was written knew this painfully well. Because there have never been Christians, I don't think, who have lived in such a hostile environment as those first believers. It's hard for us to imagine today because the West has been so uh, enculturated with the ideas of Christianity that we don't even have a concept for how scandalous their beliefs are. But New Testament scholar Karen Jobes, she notes uh, any number of ways, right, that Christians in the first century, Christians in the first three centuries following the life of Christ weren't just considered to be a little bit off kilter, but that they were menaces to society. All right, there's some obvious things, right? They, they were considered killjoys, Right, because they repudiated the, the, the pleasures of this world. Right? They, they, they repudiated what happened in the gladiatorial contest. They adhered to a different kind of sex ethic and, and left prostitutes when it was such a normal part of life that it was considered odd and strange. 
They were rejected as being antisocial. Quote, haters of mankind is how uh, one ancient writer put them, right? Because they didn't participate in the, the, the pagan rituals that surround them. They were accused of, of being homewreckers, people who, who once they were converted, they became uh, different from their family and their family systems could no longer operate the way that they used to. They were the kind of people who destroyed businesses because they refused and rejected dishonest gain. They were people who were a threat to society. They were a threat to society because everybody else around them agreed on this basic principle that you had to appease the gods. You had to make sacrifices to the gods. You had to make sacrifices and appease the emperor. But they didn't. And their refusal to go along with the, the, the societal norm of sacrificing to the gods, of, of celebrating um, and, and praying to any number of gods was, was not just a, an oddity, but it was a threat. Because those Christians refusing their civic duties would bring down the wrath of those gods upon the world. And so, uh, and so the ancient civilization there in the first couple centuries in the Roman Empire began to spread outlandish and crazy rumors about them, right? That they were cannibals who feasted on the body of their Lord, that they practiced incest since they called each other brothers and sisters. And throughout those first few centuries, there were times of systematic and clear persecution but there was a constant sporadic thread where Christians could, were never safe in their homes, where lynchings could occur at any moment. When there was active and, and, and concentrated effort to force them to participate in ceremonies and sacrifices for the good of the nation, they were a threat and they were evil. The same is true today too, isn't it? If you are enter into the public sphere and you believe that there's a, a supernatural God, a God who, who made the world and inhabits it, then you're oftentimes could be easily confused as being delusional, right? That you're an enemy of rational thought, that you're an enemy of science. If you believe that there is just one true God, right? The source of rationality and truth, then you're an extremist. If you're a person who, who followed the life of Jesus, the ethics of Jesus, and it makes you very concerned about wealth, wealth disparity. It makes you very concerned about structures uh, in our world that maintain a racial hierarchy. When you become concerned about the marginalization of the poor in our midst, then you become a, a socialist or a Marxist, right? If you argue for accountability or integrity in our public officials, or you encourage them to tell the truth, then you're a weak or you're a sellout to your political party. If you so happen to be a Republican instead of a Democrat, then you might be labeled as a, as a rhino, right? A Republican in name only. If you think that there's a reason to pause before we rewrite all of our historical understandings of sex and gender ethics, then you're immediately, without discussion, can be cut off as an intolerant bigot. If you look at the life of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus 
and it drives you to want to welcome the refugee and the immigrant, then there will be people in our world who will accuse you of harboring terrorists in our midst. And for any one of those reasons or a hundred others, the bad news is, is that you don't know how far our society will go. You don't know how far your boss will go. You don't know how far your political party will go. You don't know how far your friends and family will go to try to correct your evil behavior. You will be accused of evil if you try to pattern your life after the life of Christ. All right, so that's the bad news. What about the good news? The good news of this text is that when you are accused of evil, when you are marginalized, when you are maligned, when you are considered to be wicked and and detrimental to the good of the world, this is an opportunity when Jesus can be found beautiful. This is very different from the way we normally think, right? If you listen to, to, to many Christians today, you will hear them fear and fret over persecution. You will hear them fear and fret over those who disagree with them, those who accuse them of evil. And they will say that this is the, the end of our faith, that we are being knocked out of existence. But to Peter... Peter writing to people who experienced far worse persecution, far worse social pressures than we in America ever have. He seems to think that this is the perfect setting for our accusers to be transformed by Christ. Look at verse 12, right? He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Gentiles meaning the people who who do not yet believe in Jesus. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. On the day when Jesus comes back again to to establish his kingdom here on earth. The, The day when Jesus comes back to fulfill all the hopes and the pains and the desires that we have lost in this life that those who once accused us of evil could find the beauty and the hope of Jesus. He says, this situation, when they speak against you as evildoers, that is the situation, that is the paradigm for when they have the hope to see your good deeds. And we have good reason to believe him. We have good reason to believe him because in those first centuries, our sisters and brothers in the faith, the first Christians, as it were, who experienced uh, enormous persecution, who experienced enormous marginalization, who were rejected by their families and rejected by the world at large, they saw active growth, not just active growth, most historians, while it's, it's difficult to estimate this kind of thing, they estimate that there was roughly 6 million Christians by the year 300. 6 million Christians, but that's before uh, Christianity becomes accepted in the, as a religion in the empire, right? And that's starting from essentially zero, right? Maybe a couple hundred, maybe a thousand Christians at the time of, of Christ's death, right? So over those 250, 260 years, Christian, Christianity grew by 6 million 
adherence. They grew despite the active persecution and despite the active indoctrination of the world, despite the painful financial, relational, and societal losses, the story and the hope of Jesus spread to their neighbors. Why? Why? We need to know because if it happened then, then, it, 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 then it's our hope now. What were the kinds of things that those early believers were doing? What were the kinds of things that they did that brought life to their neighbors? Again, there's hundreds of reasons that we could talk about. But those good deeds, as Peter calls them, those lives of honor, as he calls them, we're noted by at least three things most historians that I've ever read agree. And the first is that this Christian church was known. It was notorious for showing mercy to its neighbors. In a, in a world where, where that was rapidly urbanizing and, and unsafe living conditions, unsafe, unstable buildings in the midst of filth and disease, Right, there were people who on the bottom rung were losers, the people who were sick, the people who experienced famine and, and hardship and plague. And the Roman and the Greek philosophers would have taught their people that, that such people were to be left to themselves, that, that pity was a defect of character because it provided unearned help to those who needed it. And yet the Christians were known. In the year 251, the, the Bishop of Rome uh, wrote a letter in which he claimed that there was uh, 1,500 widows and distressed persons on their list, on their list of, of people to support. And remember, there's no social security. There's no food stamps in this day. These are people that they fed and housed. These are people that they cared for and gave medical treatment to. 1,500 widows and distressed people in just Rome alone. When massive plague swept through the Roman Empire in, in, 150, in 165 and, and again in 251, it was the Christians it was the Christians while the, 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 the pagan and Gentile philosophers said, death is here, there's nothing we can do. It was the Christians who put boots on the ground and went and found the sick and the dying and who nursed them back to health and who taught them that there was meaning to their life, that there was hope of a life yet to come. And in the process, thousands and thousands of Christians perished from this plagues that were that they caught that they contracted because they chose not to hide themselves away but to care for those who were suffering the christians were known for their mercy but they were also known because they were the kind of people who eschewed the power structures of the world it was taken for granted that there was a hierarchy in the social order that there were some people who were just worth more than others notably women were a lower class. Slaves were a lower class. Undesired infants who would be left to, to, to die of exposure were of a lower class. Foreigners and non-citizens of Rome were of a lower class. And yet it is exactly those people who in the Christian community found not just care and not just support. They didn't just find pity. 
but they were the very heroes of the faith. In the midst of stringent persecution, right? In the midst of of profound sufferings, the Christian community held up these people, the people that the Roman society around them counted as worth less, as being their heroes, as being their, their champions. And they weren't noble, and it wasn't because they were noble, but because they had hope. And so their willingness and of their ability to suffer ridicule and hardship told the world around them that there was more to this life than what the Gentile philosophers told them. That there was more to this life than their physical desires would have them believe. In their conscious self-giving, they chose to believe that there was another world yet to come. And that there was another king who was directing their footsteps. Let me switch microphones. In other words, when the spotlight of their strangeness, when the world turned a spotlight on them because uh, of how unique and different they were in the world, the, 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 while they were, the spotlight was put on them and they were accused of evil, they recognized that, I'm sorry, when the spotlight when the world turned the spotlight on them and when the world noticed how, how silly and how strange and maybe how evil they were, while the spotlight was still on them, those people reflected something very different than themselves. While the world looked at them as a laughing stock, what they saw was the reflection of Jesus. They saw the reflection of the goodness and the kindness of Jesus. This is a crazy story. A story when Christians are maligned as evil, but Jesus is found to be beautiful. It's not a story that I would write. It's not the the evangelistic method that I would prefer, but it's one that has worked before. It's one that is undoubtedly working all around the world today. But the question that we have to start wrestling with here is do our Midtown neighbors here in Memphis see that kind of reflection? Do our midtown neighbors think of Christians and think that they are the kind of people who are uh, exuberant in showing mercy and care? Do our midtown neighbors look at Christians and think that they are a people who, who don't care about the powers of this world, but are steadfast in their desire to bring dignity and goodness to all people? Do our midtown neighbors look at us as people who are willing to suffer, willing to pay in order for the truth to be known? My fear, my fear is is that we as Christians, both inside Redeemer and, and in general in our culture today, is that we are a people who have heard the bad news. The bad news that we will be marginalized. The bad news that we will be accused of evil. And rather than reflecting the light of Jesus, we've tried to defend ourselves. Instead of waiting for the beauty of Jesus to be seen in our suffering and thus winning people to the goodness of Christ, we want to rush ahead and we want to find ways to defend ourselves. And so the question that we have before us The question of self-reflection, the question that we have to wrestle with is, 
this. Have you been defending the beauty of Jesus? Or when people look at you as strange, have you been defending yourself? Are you defending the wrong person? I want us to look just very, very briefly at three different ways. Three ways that as I think about the world of Christianity and the ways when I think about the world of my own heart, ways when the world around me thinks I'm strange, when the world around me thinks I'm different, when the world around me thinks I'm evil, how do I respond? And how do I respond when I'm trying to defend myself and thus block people from seeing the light of Jesus? The first way that I think is, is pretty clear is that Christians have done a really bad job of trying to defend ourselves by overpowering those who would accuse us, right? You don't have to think back too far back to remember those images of, of the crowds that ransacked the Capitol building, right? And there was all sorts of, of weird and strange disparities, right? You had people carrying Blue Lives Matter flags while they're uh, attacking police officers. You had uh, people chanting chants about defending the Constitution while they were actively trying to undo the Constitution's requirements. But perhaps most disturbing of all is you saw people carrying crosses, or most disturbing to me anyway, carrying crosses, and gathering for prayers and holding up John 3:16 while they're also hanging up nooses and breaking windows all in an attempt to try to defend themselves to say you think we're strange you think we're wrong and we will not allow it we will overcome you we will overpower you and even if the story of the world is the story that they believed it was, even if they were right in believing that they were somehow marginalized, what they were responding with was not the ethics of Jesus, but with this path, this ethics, the passions of the flesh that Peter tells us about in 2.11. The passions of the flesh which wage war against their own soul. And that could mean all sorts of things, but I think perhaps the clearest point is, is, is just a couple verses earlier. When Peter tells the people to put away all malice and deceit, to put away hypocrisy, to put away envy, to put away slander. Right, you notice that when those folks in the insurrection when they picked up their weapons of, of war, their weapons of protest, their weapons of revolt, they were not using the flesh, the, 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 the fruit of the spirit, but the patterns of the flesh. Because they chose to defend themselves with the patterns of the flesh, the pathway to Jesus was blocked. I put in the front of your bulletin this quote by Russell Moore, and I think it's worth taking a minute to read it. The culture often does not reject us because they don't believe the church's doctrinal and moral teachings, but because they have evidence that the church itself doesn't believe its own doctrinal and moral teachings. They suspect that Jesus is just a means to an end, to some political agenda, to a market for selling merchandise, or for the predatory appetites of some maniacal narcissist. We are a people 
who when we decide that we will not be victimized, when we decide that we will defend ourselves at all costs, when we decide that we will use the weapons and the powers of this world, we are a people who block our neighbors from seeing the truth and the love of Jesus, the hope that could be theirs. But we don't just try to overpower our enemies. We have other strategies as well, other strategies to defend ourselves. We have strategies like running away, right? Isolating ourselves from our neighbors, right? I've heard in the last few weeks numerous conversations that Christians have been having in the open marketplace of ideas when they wonder how far does it take? When will it get so bad that we will just have to withdraw and hide from the rest of the world? A couple years ago, um, one writer wrote a book called The Benedictine Option, right? Where he encouraged uh, Christians to find little enclaves of safety where they can huddle up, where they aren't exposed to the pressures and the fears of the world that does not like their teaching, to find their own schools, to find their own group of friends, to find even in some cases their own land, right? To go find and create communities where there's open land, where they can, can create their own little utopia, their own little place, where they, will fear, where they will hear no evil, right? Where nobody will accuse them of wrongdoing because everyone there will think the way that they do. But how does Peter's vision come true? How will they see the good deeds of Christ if we've hidden ourselves from our view, if we've run away? This last one though, this last way that we try to defend ourselves, it's the one I find most convicting and maybe you will too. There's folks that try to, to overpower their enemies. There's folks that try to run away and hide there's folks who try to run away and form their own communities. But there's also a lot of people who live right here in the middle of Midtown, people like me. People who, in an effort to defend myself, have hidden the truth that I believe, that I've oriented my life around. And how do I do that? Well, I do it by trying to avoid self-exposure. I do it by trying to avoid uh, hard conversations where I know the person disagrees with me. I do it by, by trying to, to avoid bringing up the fact that I uh, don't just go to church, I happen to be a pastor, right? I do it when I, I try to avoid being myself, being honest about my motivations and trying to feel and be normal so that they don't take another look at me because I don't want them to think that I'm wrong and I don't want them to think that I'm evil and I don't want them to think that I'm a bigot and I don't want them to think that I'm like those Christians over there. And so in, in everyday interactions, I do all that I can to try to hide that reality from them. Because I'm so, normal, so enamored with being thought normal. I'm so enamored with being thought intelligent. I'm so enamored with being thought loving. Maybe you're so enamored with being thought progressive or, or being uh, thought of as a conservative that you hide the distinctive love, the distinctive good deeds, the distinctive honor of Jesus, the beauty of Jesus from the world's view because you want to protect yourself. You don't want 
the world to think you're strange. You don't want your friends to think you're strange. You don't want your society to view you as evil. But when we try to protect ourselves, instead of reflecting the light of Jesus into the world, instead of letting the world see the good deeds that Jesus has worked in our life, what we are doing is we are putting up barricades. How much more freely could we love people if we allowed them to see? How much more freely could we listen to a, a opposing viewpoints if we were secure knowing that our, we are following King Jesus? How much more patient could you be when you are ridiculed or when you are thought less of? How much clearer could we make the life and the love of Jesus to our neighbors if we're not trying to defend ourselves, if we're not trying to prove ourselves normal or strong, but if instead we focus our attention in proving that Jesus is beautiful. I think of Zacchaeus. You remember that story in the Bible? Jesus, when in, in his life, was walking through and he was uh, teaching the crowds. And little Zacchaeus uh, had heard enough things about Jesus that he was really curious who he was. And so he went to go follow Jesus, to go listen and, and to hear what Jesus had to say to the crowds. But the crowds were so thick. The crowds were so tall and Zacchaeus was so short that he couldn't see Jesus. He couldn't make his way to Jesus. And because the crowds were so thick, he had to climb up into a tree on his own to get sight of Jesus, to get a sightline to Jesus. In a metaphorical way, I think we have done the same things. We've become so enamored with trying to defend ourselves, with trying to, to hold our, our placards, trying to assert our dominance, trying to, to find ways that we can be normal and just like everybody else. And instead of showcasing and hiding, highlighting the love of Jesus, we've put up barricades that block our neighbors from seeing his truth and his beauty. Instead of enabling them to, to, to see our good works and to glorify God on the day of his visitation, we've left them off to themselves to find Jesus on their own, to climb a tree if they have to, because they're not going to see the life of Christ in us. We can do better. We can do better because Jesus has given us his peace and he has given us his kindness and he has given us the security that even if the world, even if our friend, even if our spouse, even if our kids, even if our, our neighbors think us strange, that they would think of Jesus as beautiful. So let us give up on our self-dependence. Let us give up on our self-defense. Let us embrace the fact that Jesus is making us to be a different people. And even those who accuse us of wrong will and can see the beauty of Jesus if only we choose to put our effort in highlighting his beauty instead of defending ourselves. Pray with me. God, we pray that in your kindness and in your goodness, God, in our fear and in our insecurities, that you would create us to be a people, a people who is willing to risk being thought strange, a people who is willing to risk being thought evil 
if it allows people to see the beauty that you have brought to this world, the hope of the life that is yet to come. Father, I pray that you, by your spirit, would give us the strength, that you would give us the courage, that you would give us the discernment in how to show our world your ridiculous mercy, your ridiculous kindness, and your ridiculous goodness for all of our neighbors. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.